Josh Swanson, Vogel Law Firm. Hey, those levels look pretty good. Let me check to make sure that there's no static now. Hey, everything looks good. Thank you for joining us here as we conclude 2020, looking at 2021. Wanted to bring Josh Swanson in because, you know, my Google alerts and all of a sudden your name pops up and you're involved in another court case or you're getting asked for your opinion on a court case involving mineral rights. And I didn't really, you know, you know how I am. I don't really buy into a lot of fake news and different news. I just go right to the source. So <laughs> we just bring Josh Swanson and talk about that. So how are you doing today? I can tell you, yeah, the wind's raging outside my uh, living room window. They're definitely not fake today, but it's uh, good to be on you here. Uh, on with you here before Christmas, talking oil and gas. Well, let's talk about that mineral rights case, and then I want to ask your opinion on the North Face uh, thing as well. Uh, just actually from an attorney standpoint, I have a, an, a question from you, free legal advice. Sorry to impromptu that on you, but let's talk a little bit about that mineral case happening out in the Bakken out in western North Dakota. I thought it was all done, and uh, your, your clients were going to get paid, and is that the case, or is there, is there like a hiccup now, or what's happening? Yes, it's in another another new year approaching, uh, another year that this saga continues, and, and we ended up filing a, a new lawsuit in federal court um, in November because the uh, the state refused to recognize one of our clients' interests that have been in his family since Garrison Dam and, and Lake Sakakawea. The surface was acquired by the U.S. back in the 1950s, and even with the two favorable decisions in our Wilkinson case and the North Dakota Supreme Court's decision in the Storm case, the, the state still persists, which is um, frustrating, dis- disappointing, mind-boggling. I mean, pick your adjective to describe it. So uh, that fight continues. And, and in this one, we've actually filed it in federal court. Um, a couple of reasons for that. But the uh, most recently, the state requested a, an extension to file their answer, which was granted. And that's any kind of a pro forma thing. The judge has discretion to do that. The state wanted a three-week extension with the holidays coming up. And then we had no objection to it. And even if we did, it wouldn't have mattered because the judge can do what, uh, what he wants to do with his calendar. So that's ongoing. But then in the, the Wilkinson one, which a lot of your listeners are, are well familiar with, the uh, operator released the funds that were in suspense, which we're uh, very appreciative of. But we do have several claims remaining, including those against the, the state of North Dakota for our clients' attorney's fees, which have accumulated now they're you know, north of $500,000, which sounds like a, a pretty big number. And, and it is a big number. It's an absolutely um, very big number. But you think about the fact that you know, we're coming up on the seventh year anniversary when, when those clients walked into our office and told us about the situation. And, and we actually took a look at all the filings in the case and everything else. And, um, you know, the plaintiffs, the Wilkinson family, had two attorneys representing them in this case. The, the state and the other defendants have had 17. You know, there's been almost 2,000 pages of briefing filed and, and uh, 550 docket entries so it's a situation where when the north dakota supreme court issued its decision earlier this fall we were hopeful that the state would um, be agreeable to resolving this but unfortunately that doesn't appear to be the case so we'll have to push forward with our claim for damages against the state including attorney's fees 
This might sound like a really dumb question here, but, um, and I, I may have asked you this before in a different way, but are there some sort of federal precedents that are going to be set that's going to trigger into different states or the way that the, you know, the federal lease ban is coming in, you know, it's a problem from North Dakota because once you get underground, you know, you start, you start talking about different, you know, different leases once you start doing the two miles horizontal drilling and that sort of thing. So it does become a little bit complicated is, is, is that at all in play here with this? Is that why they're so resistant to doing what most people think is just the right thing? Yeah, and, and that's a, a really good question, Jason. And it's tough to, to speak to the motivations of the state at this point. And, and I think a big part of it is they're, they're just uh, dug in on their position, despite the fact they've had the, the North Dakota Supreme Court rule against them several times on it, and attorney's fees are mandatory. I mean, the, the case law on that is very, very clear from the North Dakota Supreme Court. When the, the government tries to take your property, even if they're successful in, in taking it and under an uh, eminent domain, they still have to provide the impacted landowner with their attorney's fees. I mean, the law is crystal clear on that. So there's really no good outcome for the state here. I mean, the only thing they're doing is running up the bill that they're ultimately going to have to pay under North Dakota law. And we feel very confident and, and very strong in, in our position on that. And, you know, their motivations outside that it's, it's really perplexing because all, all they're doing at this point is generating unfavorable case law for them. And, and at a certain point, you, you have to ask, when is it going to stop? And, and our, our hope is that, you know, they'll come to the table here and, and realize that. And, and we've told them ad nauseum. I would venture to guess probably at least on you know, 12 to 20 occasions. It, it seems several times a year we're reaching out to them and say, let's get this done. Let's figure it out. Let's sit down in a room and figure this out. And, and they don't respond, which is, which is perhaps the most frustrating thing. You know, it's a, a state agency funded by taxpayers like you and me and, and all of your listeners, and we can't even get a response from them. You know, they know that we're not a scorched earth fire and brimstone kind of operation. We want to try to get this worked out and and, and the outcome where our clients can move on with their lives and and we can have some certainty. And, you know, here we are four years after uh, legislation was passed and it's being applied in a way that's unconstitutional. So we have that in in federal court now and and the state refuses to get Wilkinson done despite all, all the decisions. So, you know, it's, it's something I, I suppose not, not to be a cynic, but you know we've grown accustomed to it, and we'll keep plodding along, and, and we'll keep fighting, and, and one of these days, and we'll finally have some resolution to it. It's just disappointing, not just for mineral owners, and not just for my clients, but you know I, I know I've been on your program here many many times talking about the uncertainty and the difficulty it creates for operators who are who are just trying to do the right thing and, and they want certainty and, and resolution as much as mineral owners do, but you have the, the state that is really preventing that. So, you know, if we have to finish this out in, in front of the, the state district court in Williston and then on to the Supreme court for a third time in this case. And if we have to keep pushing forward with our, our lawsuit, the uh, EEE minerals case in federal court, which uh, as I mentioned, we filed and served in November, that's what we're going to do. So, What's the deadline tomorrow, uh, December 24th, high water mark? Is that affiliated with this case at all? 
Yeah, it is, and, and that's a really good question. So under under the statute, 61-33.1, the— Which everybody uh, knows exactly what you're talking about there, right? They got that written on their on their uh, refrigerator, don't they, that number? What was that number again? Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> the 61-33.1, man. I, oh. I'll tell you what, brother, I, I think sometimes I see that number in my sleep and numbers like that, and you're, you're, you're like 2134. Just you're like Hurley from Lost. Those numbers you know, just keep coming. It's—, it's it's like that scene on uh, either Rain Man or The Hangover where uh, Zach Galifianakis, his character is in a casino and all the, the algebra and the, the tangent and cosine stuff is flashed in front of his face. And, and sometimes I feel like it. And it's, it's like that old Yogi Bear at Deja Vu all over again. But oh, those, you know, those, those, I think those numbers will be with me until until I'm old and gray and, and hopefully having beers on a lake deck somewhere. But uh, yeah, under under the statute, it requires that six months from when KLJ released their acreage adjustments, which would have been back on June 25th here, coming up on the six-month deadline that, that the operators in state, if there was no other sort of title dispute, so if there's, you know, no issues with, you know, did grandma and grandpa convey this, was there a probate done, things like that requires the funds to be released. And, and we've started to see that. Um, like I said, our clients in Wilkinson, Equinor released payments here in late November. And I do want to say that, you know, um, the Jody Smith, who's a land commissioner, I've had some really good conversations with her and, and she deserves credit. She's, I think she's being as transparent as, as she can be. And I think she's trying to do the right thing. I think what the, um, certain elements in, in the state government are doing are making her job awfully tough. And she got she got put in a really tough position. I mean, she inherited a mess and inherited this lawsuit. And and so I you know I do have empathy for her. But you know the law is what the law is. And and when certain elements inside the state government are are refusing to abide by it, um, you know that has repercussions and, and consequences. Where you know we've got to take actions to protect our clients' rights. So I, I wanted to make sure that that I mentioned that because. Um, you know, she's a party to, to the lawsuit in federal court, but she's always this fall. She's always been available for a, a phone call. She's always responded to emails. And, and my hope is that, you know, the folks in the state government that are really making her job very difficult um, do the right thing. So so this can get resolved. But those those checks should be out here by December 25th is, is how I how I read the statute. So I think we're going to, uh, for better or worse, see potentially see more litigation out of this and, and this is a situation where you know, what i do for fun on, on nights after after my son goes to bed i was looking through a, a memo we've put together that had a lot of the uh, legislative history on 2134 and and uh, comments and, and testimony and whatnot from senators uh, then senator armstrong senator Unruh, you know martinson kaiser um a lot of guys that were uh, behind mineral owners on this and you see a lot of the things we'd warned them about back in 2017 coming to fruition now two legislative sessions later and at a certain point to, to be frank and be blunt you know i i really would hope that the legislature puts the boot in the ass of those in state government that keep dragging this thing out because we've you know we've got a lot of smart people in north dakota we've got a lot of smart people we have a lot of good people at the capitol building in bismarck and i think someone just needs to, to step up and um be pretty forceful like, like i had said so 
Well, we'll see where those payments go. I, I will say that, you know, from my perspective as, as a litigator who's been heavily involved in this, if payments aren't made to our clients by December 25th, so long as the state is and operators, too, are, are willing to communicate with us and have an open line of dialogue, that sure helps prevent filing a lawsuit. And, and, and I've, you know, I respect the position, like I said, that operators are in, and, and I know there are challenges, and when they're willing to have a dialogue with us, you know, that helps keep them out of court. But the, the problems happen when the, the state stonewalls and obstructs and, and, you know, tells us to take a hike or is, is dug in in their position. And, there, you know, there are some operators that are better than others. There are some that will pick up the phone, uh, and I won't go into, into names because I don't want to call them out or get them in trouble but you know there's a couple operators i can pick up the phone and call their in-house counsel and they're responsive and we talk and that helps avoid lawsuits and then you have some operators where you got a, a vp of land or, or whoever else that tells me to go to hell and you know <laughs> tell, telling uh, someone who's been in this fight for a long time on behalf of mineral owners to uh, to do something like that uh, that's probably not going to lead to real amicable results so i you know i my, my my hope, Jason, I, I know a lot of your listeners and a lot of folks in, in western North Dakota and, and really all across the country that own mineral rights in the Bakken have been impacted by this, and I'm, I'm tired of seeing them. There's a lot of them that are aging, and it gets really sad for me to, you know, I, and I know I've told you this before, I've had three clients die in this case, that they were never able to enjoy the, the their family's legacy, the money that, that was theirs, that the state got tied up. And that, that makes me fight even harder because it just makes me mad as hell that you got folks where, you know, like me, a fifth generation North Dakota, and we've had some of the same land in our family going back to about the turn of the century up in Benson County. And when you have a, a government that mucks that up and, and tries to claim it, you know, you're darn right that frustrates me. And, and I really hope that we can get this figured out and get it done because, you know, I've, I've got plenty of other work to do. And the last thing that I want to do is spend, you know, another year, year and a half, two years in, in state court or federal court because the state won't make this right. And I, and I think the end of the day, you know, like the, the legislators I just mentioned, looking back through their legislative testimony and comments in, in 2017, they said they just want to make it right. And, and I hope that's something where uh, maybe we can make some progress on, on finally getting this across the finish line in 2021. And then, uh, then you and I can find some other stuff to talk about. There's plenty to talk about, but I just want to make sure I got the Professor Plum in the conservatory with the candlestick correct here. So this lawsuit, the Wilkinson's State of North Dakota School Board Land Trust, uh, and I, I, I know I butchered it, but I got enough keywords in there, so I think people are following me on this. Um, that's been going on for about 10 years, right? 10 plus years, that lawsuit? Yeah, that yeah, but they they had started with another attorney prior to us, but sure. we really uh, we really amped up the fire in 2014. But yeah, they've they've been they've been going at this the better part of a decade now. Okay, and in that time, people have graduated college, went and gone to college, which the people have had to pay for. And like yep. you mentioned, there's been people who have passed on and and died. Okay, and so yep. there at at the end of the day, the North Dakota Supreme Court ruled in favor of you and your clients, the mineral owners, not the state of North Dakota, correct? Correct. Yeah, twice. They've ruled for us twice now. And then you can tack on the Sorum case, too, where the uh, the Supreme Court said that under the uh, Flood Control Act of 1944, which is part of our other lawsuit now in federal court, that 
the state doesn't have an interest in anything outside of the historic river channel. So that's spot on. So tomorrow, by the way, we're recording this on December 23rd. And on December 24th, which is tomorrow, the state is required to release some funds to those individuals. And I'm looking, and they have till June 24th through 2022, depending on when some certain things were filed and et cetera, is my guess from, from taking a look at this kind of recap. So my guess is that there's supposed to be some funds released tomorrow, December 24th, and it made it sound like your earlier comments there is. Are you expecting they're not going to, or are you expecting they are going to? Yeah, I, I think it's going to depend on the operator because I know, you know, in Wilkinson's Equinor, you know, formerly Statoil, they've released funds. So it, it, we certainly appreciate that. But they, they did that last month, and, and I've heard that other folks have started getting checks too. But okay. I, I know that I've got, you know, I've got a lot of clients that are impacted by this where I've sent letters to the state and to the operators, things, cases that aren't in litigation. You know, we, we don't start by just filing a lawsuit. That's, that's not my style. That's, I don't think you get really good results doing that. I think it's important to try to have a, a dialogue and work things out first before running to court and filing a lawsuit. But we've, you know, we've sent out, you know, probably know, 15 to 20 letters for clients and, a lot of them haven't been paid yet, and, and hopefully I'll get an email later today saying, you know, great news, we get paid. Uh, I suspect that's probably not going to be the case that, you know, sometime in early January after Christmas and the New Year's, we're going to have to evaluate next steps and have some discussions with operators about, you know, where things stand. And, and like I said, if the operators, if they're willing to have a discussion with us and if they shoot straight on it, you know, we're not going to drag them into federal court and say, hey, judge, they're in violation of the statute, you know, you should order them to release payment. I mean, we, we understand there's some moving parts here and, and we're willing to work with them. But yeah, the, the statute, there's some timelines that were put in place and, you know, the acreage adjustments from KLJ have been out for six months. And, and, and part of the issue um, with those acreage adjustments, and, and I know we've talked about this before, there's about 10,000 acres that, you know, like the Wilkinson property, the state has never had an interest in, and that KLJ survey, which, you know, the state has paid, I think, in excess of a million dollars for now, that gives 10,000 acres to the state that the state's never had an interest in, and that's part of our claims in, in the federal lawsuit, so um, we'll see. There are, uh, back to your original point there, um, you know, you get, a, you get a lawyer talking, especially a couple of days before Christmas when he's sitting at home, and I suppose we go on and on and ramble, but uh, yeah, there's timelines in the statute, and um, I, I, I don't think that all the funds are going to be released between now and tomorrow. So I think we'll be having some conversations with uh, the state and some operators in early 2021 here to see where things stand. Well, that's why I wanted to break it down because I thought I was reading the tea leaves right on this, which is you can fight the man, King George, the state for 10 years and win twice in the state Supreme Court. And they still are going to do whatever they want. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's what's so frustrating about it because you know there's not just the the Supreme Court. You know, the Supreme Court issued its two decisions in Wilkinson and its decision in Sorum, and uh, the legislature passed the legislation. The governor signed it, trying to do the right thing. But then you get uh, an, an attorney with the state that goes rogue and just decides that you know they're going to do what they want, and and there's got to be uh, accountability at a certain point. You know, there has to be accountability and someone on that land board or someone in that Capitol building has to take the bull by the horns and say enough. We got to you know, we got to stop putting 
these families through it. And, you know, my clients, they, they had, like I said, their money released by Equinor, but at the same time, they've racked up half a million dollars in lawyer fees and they've, they carried the banner and they fought this fight for everybody else. And now we're, we're fighting to make them whole because what's, what's the justice and what's the fairness. And, you know, after being vindicated twice by the Supreme court where the Supreme court says the state has no interest in their property, they've had to pay half a million dollars to, to have that fight. That's, that's not something that, that I enjoy doing. You know, I'd, I'd much rather the state had their act together and stop this stuff a few years ago. And we went, having to have these discussions so that's that's a big part of, of wilkinson now going forward is you know we're gonna we're gonna fight until we fall down to to do everything in our power to make sure that that family's made whole and that the state is is held accountable for their attorney's fees and you know when you you look at the sheer numbers on it like uh, the number of filings that i mentioned the number of attorneys involved the number of defendants on the other side the fact that uh, we've taken this to the supreme court twice and the state persists i mean really the only thing the state is doing now by dragging this out is giving us um, is racking up the bill on attorney's fees that we're going to go after in court. So, uh, you know, we'll we'll see where this this ends up. But, yeah, that's an important, uh, I think, distinction to make on, on the operators and the release of funds and how the statute works and um, how it's impacted uh, not just my clients, but thousands of mineral owners. Josh Swanson, Vogel Law. Uh, we're talking about the Wilkinson case out in, in North Dakota with the minerals under Lake Sakakawea. Army Corps of Engineers' involvement as well back in the 1960s, a couple Supreme Court uh, decisions later, and they're still fighting it, and the mineral owners have certificates from the Army Corps of Engineers, a couple Supreme Court decisions in their favor, and the mineral owners are still fighting and fighting and fighting. So it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a really, it's one of those examples that really gets used for a long time because it's a David versus Goliath and Goliath continues to just not go down, you know? You know, it's, it's interesting. You mentioned that, uh, that story I've actually got here, uh, history channels running a marathon on their mini series, the Bible. And, and that was just on about an hour, hour and a half ago. Uh, that, that episode where, David took his uh, slingshot and stoned and hurled it at Goliath and knocked Goliath on the head. And, you know, if we, we'll keep firing stones as long as we have to, man, if that's what it takes, you know, we'll put the stone in our slingshots and we're glad, we're glad to take on Goliath or, or anybody else. Cause it's a fight. It's a fight worth having. And, and we're, you know, we're proud to represent these mineral owners and it's a fight, you know, we're, we're willing to keep going. If they want to keep fighting it, they think we're going to go away. That's, that's just not going to happen. Now, you do business outside of North Dakota, too, right? You've uh, Anywhere in the nation? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting, uh, from a legal sense, I'm, I'm only licensed in North Dakota and Minnesota, and I'm okay. licensed in some federal courts. So um, I can practice in the District of North Dakota, those two states, the Eighth Circuit. I have clients that are all across the nation, but I can't, you know, unless I pro-hoc in or, or associate with another attorney. You know, I, I can represent people, let's say, from, Colorado, Georgia, North Carolina, who have property interests in North Dakota, but I can't go file a lawsuit in those states. Sure, sure. And, um, you know, North Dakota, 93, 97% private. So there's ownership all over the United States. And obviously, yeah. you know, that that's that's like a lot like Texas too. Same thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If um, just want to take a couple uh, minutes and ask your opinion 
uh, your legal opinion, and I'm going to make sure I put out the word opinion because I, I don't think you're like a finance attorney or you're involved in that sort of law. So I, I'm not sure what your expertise or qualification is towards this type of thing, but North Face uh, refused some business with an oil and gas company. They had, um, oh, I think it was a 400 coat order, something like that. And they cited for their, basically their company policy and lumped them in with tobacco and pornography and um, drugs, alcohol, that sort of thing. Lumped them in the same kind of that sin tax category, if you will, and said, Due to their uh, policies and standards, community standards, though they, they cannot do business with oil and gas companies. And of course, the hypocrisy came out because a lot of the North Face products are made out of the oil and Australian gas products. products. Yeah, and and not yep. to mention how, how do you transport them places? And you yeah, know, I'm sure they're, they're on. I know I've had some North Face, or not necessarily North Face stuff, but you know, uh, we get a lot of stuff delivered through Amazon and, you know, that doesn't come here on uh, and not to knock any form of transportation, but it's, you know, it's a, a jet fueled with jet fuel that brings a lot of their products all over, all over the country. So I think, I think there is uh, quite a bit of hypocrisy in, in what they're doing. Well, and then, you know, you've got, uh, they've got a subsidiary company called Bulwark, which is fire resistant clothing. So not only Which gets is sold a lot in the oh yeah in, oh. in Oregon with that that's sold all over. you go to any gas station in Western North Dakota or any oil and gas play and that stuff's lying in the shelves and flying off because you, workers absolutely need it for their safety. I know, and I, I was talking to the uh, president of Liberty Oil just about a half hour ago, Ron Gusick, and um, and I, I said I, I'm not sure how many firefighters or, or farmers are buying FR clothing, but I'm sure pretty sure all the welders are in the oil and gas camp. So. I can't imagine that, you know, by by doing what I call, and this is why I wanted to get your legal uh, 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 mind, I guess, is I call this rank prejudice. This, this to me, and I had a politician say this to me, this is like when that uh, baker didn't serve that uh, couple. It's that same-sex couple. Yeah, it's very yeah. similar to that, which is just a rank prejudice. And so... It, it's it's almost different to look at it like that from one side of it. And then the other side I wanted to get your your reaction on is I think they're a public company. I'm pretty sure of it. I looked yesterday and it appeared to be because they had they had, you know, the, the NASDAQ numbers or the stockhold numbers. And if you're a public company and you're turning down a substantial amount of business and also putting a lot of uh risk to your other company that that seems to me a little bit risky and advantageous during these times when bailouts and all this other stuff is going on like why are you refusing business just from that standpoint so are there any like legal things involved that that need to be talked about that i'm missing in this whole thing i guess i don't know man it's weird yeah, well, what's interesting is you know you, you talk about, i don't and i don't have a finance background but actually you know i'm I don't know that I'd go so far to say that I'm this, uh, you know, some sort of constitutional scholar, but I, I would say I'm a student of the Constitution, and I actually taught constitutional law at Concordia across the river in uh, Moorhead for a semester. So I'm, I'm very passionate about that and, and do a lot of homework and, and reading on it. And there's different, you know, it's more of, I think, a constitutional issue where you know, the law sets up protected classes where you can't discriminate against somebody based on, you know, race, religion, 
gender. There's there's different levels of, of scrutiny. You know, there's a, what's called a strict scrutiny. There's an intermediate level of review between a, a rational standard, rational review, a strict scrutiny, and, and how the courts look at it. And in this situation, you know, if you're a protected class and there's like a history of discrimination there, so you talk about your your race, your religion, ethnicity, uh, those different class and they're, they're called classes under the law that's why i'm using the term a protected class that's a legal term that there are protections there but in this situation I, i'm not aware of any and, and i don't know if any lawsuits will result out of this i think it's probably more of a, a business decision that the company's making where they've decided that you know whether it's uh, tobacco oil and gas uh, etc that they're going to refuse to sell products so I don't know that that uh, the oil and gas industry has any recourse to, to go after North Face, but I think it's I think a couple things from from my perspective. One, it's it's a bad business decision. I mean, especially now with this economy, you're refusing to sell product to a certain industry, and and I think there is some hypocrisy, like we talked about, where you're using fossil fuels to transport your products around the world. And I can tell you what, Jason, uh, when we were when we were emailing this morning. The executives at North Face, I, I doubt they're flying hot air balloons to get to different meetings across the globe. They're hopping on G5s and private jets that are fueled with jet fuel. Where do they get that jet fuel? From oil and gas plays. And now they've decided that because they want to take a stand or have some sort of image, they're not going to sell products to, to folks in the industry, which, I mean, you take a look at, and I'm all for and all of the above uh, energy policies um just want to make that clear but at the same time you know where does the majority of our energy come from you take a look at what uh, as far as jobs and the economy what oil and gas does and what it has done so for a company like north face to take that position that they're not going to sell i i think it's wrong it, it might be legal but just because something is legal doesn't doesn't mean that it's it's not wrong or foolhardy. So I I have a tough time with with companies doing doing things like that. But you know it's you know on the other hand it's it's their business if they want to make that decision. I'm sure uh, you know the folks in oil and gas who have you know powering a lot of economies throughout the country, whether in the, the Bakken, the the Eagleford or, or Marcellus, creating all those jobs there. They can go to somebody else, and I'm sure Under Armour. Or, you know, I, I know there's a few outfits in, in North Dakota here in Fargo in our backyard that uh, that make apparel that would be glad to sell to them. So the the long, the short answer to your question after after my um, my long running um, monologue there is that from a legal standpoint, they're probably entire entirely within their rights to do it. But, you know, from the perspective of is it good business? I, I don't think so. But someone there decided it is. And you hate to see. I'd also say, you know, you hate you hate to see companies like that trying to bolster their image. And 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 what is it? What is it about? At the end of the day, North Face isn't doing this. I don't think because there's some altruistic kumbaya company that that wants to give back. I think what they're doing is saying, hey, we can get a lot of mileage out of this, and we can sell more quotes by saying, hey, we don't do business with the oil and gas industry. So folks who are, you know, anti oil and gas are going to say, well, son of a gun, let's uh, go buy more North Face stuff. So I, I think they're just suckering a group of folks into to buying more of their jackets at the expense of somebody else because they've had their accountants and, and their whoever makes the decisions there, their bean counters, have run the math and they've decided that from a business perspective, they, they think they have opportunity to make a bunch of money if they can advertise that and pitch that. So if they 
you know, start running commercials or doing ads or direct, you know, emails and, and Facebook stuff like that saying, Hey, we're, you know, the divesting of from fossil fuels and, and not making products for them by our coats. That's probably going to cost some people to buy their coats. So I, I don't like it. I think it's bad when American business discriminates again. I mean, there are some situations where, you know, obviously you don't want to sell any, I, I hate to say sell weapons to terrorists, that, but that's not what we're talking about here. I just think it's uh, what it really is, is anti-American. It's anti-American when one company, particularly a publicly traded company, decides that they're not going to sell products to an industry because, you know, they want to try to bolster their image with it. So that, that would be my take on it yeah, for, I think, for what it's worth. I, I think part of it, too, is when there are a number of bailouts that are happening. I don't know if they got any bailout money. I have absolutely no idea. But I, this is just from a symbolic standpoint where when we're starting to you know, bail out billions and billions of dollars, the public does feel a little bit like they got to say in something now. Yeah. Either either through, you know, forms like this or through their, you know, elected officials. Yeah. And when this VF Corporation, VF Corporation is the parent company of North Face and Bulwark and everything else like that. They're um they 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 haven't set themselves up for uh for for the not finger pointing, let's put it this way because yeah. well last year they bought uh, 53,000 square feet outside of Denver for a private jet hangar so the executives could fly in and out. Yeah. So, I mean, that right there, okay, well, thank you for Mr. Hypocrisy. But the second part that's a little bit concerning to me is just this morning when I was trying to find the story to email to you to, so you could take a look at it before this interview, the number one story with North Face today is their partnership with Gucci. So they partnered yeah. with Gucci and they launched a new website to Asia. And my first thought was, okay, how did how did oil and gas rank below China on human rights? Okay, yeah. this is this is getting a little bit out of hand now. So it's it's it's, it's always you know nine, maybe not nine times out of ten, but you know, how many times do you hear that adage? Follow the money, and they're doing it because I, I think they they've probably determined they can sell more coats and pullovers and everything else if they take that position. And, and what I would say, you know, I, companies like North Face or, or really any company of that size, particularly publicly traded, it's it's not like they're, you know, have cash reserves in their cash. I mean, they've got good cash flow, obviously, but, you know, they have financing, they have lenders, they have credit lines, they work with big national banks to get money to finance things like their hangers and, and expansions and, and launching this thing with Gucci and uh, I think, you know, if I were them, I'd probably be a little pissed off, too, that, you know, this particular, um, if, if, if I were industry, I'd be upset that, okay, this company that can get loans, et cetera, and have no issues with that can decide that they're going to discriminate against us. So, you know, I, I don't know that legally North Face can't do it, but I, I can understand the frustration where, you know, they're getting financing from, from whoever or wherever for their expansions and their projects, which, you know, good for them if their business is growing. That's fantastic anytime a business is growing. But, you know, to, to me, I think we're on the same page. It just doesn't, it doesn't pass the smell test, particularly when they're, you know, launching products into places not known for having a, a real strong human rights record. And I, I think that just speaks to the hypocrisy, just like building a, a new hangar and, and flying their, their jets everywhere does. And just like, you know, they're, their products that they're shipping over to Asia. I'm guessing they're putting those on a cargo ship or a boat to, to cross the Pacific or Atlantic. I don't, I don't know logistically what they're 
you know, how they're doing that, but, you know, they're either flying them over there or they're putting them on a, a big ship. And, you know, what's powering those big ships and those big planes sure as hell isn't uh, helium or, uh, well, we know what's powering it. I guess I'll, I'll just leave it at that. But, you know, I, I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's anti-American. I think it's just flat out anti-American. Well, here's the part that bothers me is that if, if I'm going to put my journalist hat on, and I don't even have to follow the money because there's no money to follow. They rejected it. So if I'm to put my journalist hat on, it is going to sound like a conspiracy hat. And that's the part that is so frustrating because what, for somebody to reject business and to basically you know, uh, commit uh, professional suicide to another one of your department, another one of your companies that's doing pretty good because the oil and gas industry has been doing very well. Okay, so to do that is very peculiar. It's almost like you know you're going to get bailed out. Like, I, like, I think, like no matter what, yeah, no matter how you do, the government's going to bail you out because, hey, we're North Face. Everybody knows yeah, about us. We're like Twinkies. We can't go, Twinkies can't go bankrupt. Everybody loves Twinkies. Let's bring them back. I mean, it's almost I, like that. I, I would suspect what they're doing. I, I think it's a flat-out business calculation where, you know, if you can make more money doing X than doing Y, they're going to do X. And I think they've... And obviously, I don't have any inside baseball on this, but uh, I would suspect that, you know, the reason they're doing it is because they've determined that if they can, you know, kick the oil and gas industry and and take a shot against them from an image standpoint, even if it's going to take a hit on their, you know, flame retardant and protective clothing, they're going to more than make up for it, el- make up for it elsewhere. So that I, I would guess there's probably a lot of that going on because there's, you know, I think a company like North Face, they, they don't make those decisions. And, and to your point, I think they don't make that those decisions in a vacuum. So I, you know, I, I really can't uh, speak with any certainty as to what motivates them, but, but I suspect that, you know, given, given the fact that they are a large business and, and are in the business of making money that, it was a just a flat out business decision. So, which is disappointing. It's it's disappointing too because I I think that you know it, in in America to to treat one industry like that to, to score some points. You know, they and they're free to do it. You know, it's their business. If they want to, their board decides they want to do it. You know, that's I guess that's their decision. We'll buy coats elsewhere. But it's it's disappointing that you know you got a company like that that makes a really good product that's decided to to take those steps. So that's interesting. Uh, we Somebody earlier this week we were talking, and they mentioned that uh, they thought this exact same thing, that uh, this was a calculated move, that the backlash, they used the oil and gas industry basically for the backlash in order to spark support from the environmentalists to go buy uh, more North Face stuff. And then in conjunction now with the launch of the Asian website, that momentum is just going to keep going and going. And um, the bulwark part doesn't matter because the oil and gas industry is a results-based business. So as long as they're providing XYZ price, the oil and gas industry is probably going to continue to buy from them regardless because they need to make their numbers. And they have a regulation that they have to wear the fire-resistant clothing for safety. And that's another part, too, that's, that's with this is that the oil and gas industry is a life-saving business, okay? Meaning a lot like how agriculture was for a long time. You know, agriculture was a very dangerous business with rollovers and machine equipment and people. It still is. It's, it still is. Oil, agriculture still is a very 
yeah. business. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, you don't have a lot of time to, you know, get caught up in these little platitude like arguments. You're just so worried about, you know, living. And so, yeah. so yeah. that, that was the other part of it was that, you know, they're going to have to keep buying the FR clothing anyway. So it's not even going to impact bulwark at all. So, when I heard that, I went, you know, that's almost Machiavellian brilliant. It's just so good yeah. because, anyway, so I, it's it's interesting you brought that up too in, in a roundabout sort of way that is probably a calculated move and they're they're ahead of us. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, you know, that, that, the, the lawyer in me there, we'll, we'll get there. We might not always be on a straight line, but we'll, we usually try to get to the destination. Well, all right. In conclusion, good sir, they just benched Carson Wentz in football. Of course, you host the, uh, is it, what's, what's the name of the podcast again? So we've got, uh, we got Herded here with Swanee on uh, 740 The Fan in Fargo, and then we've got the Bison Illustrated podcast and then Thundering Herdcast that we do on, on Apple iTunes. So we got a couple uh, platforms for the Bison talk. So uh, Carson Wentz, of course, was the big NDSU Bison uh, of this uh, generation to go Philadelphia Eagles. Just got benched, and Jalen Hurts looks like he's not going anywhere soon. Uh, looks very good there. Um, but the reason I bring that up is to, you know, if you want to talk about any NDSU football stuff, you certainly can. But I took a look at my fantasy football team today, and I think I only have one player, Tom Brady. Oh, Tariq Hill and Tom Brady are the only two players starting on my roster that were originally on my team when I started this year. That's how many moves we've had to do this year. It's been a wild fantasy football year. Yeah, and I actually, I just, uh, my at Vogel, we got a work league with 10 teams, and I just lost in our uh, league semifinals of the playoffs, and I've, I've got Tariq Hill, but I'm with you, man. I had Nick Chubb, and I had to weather the storm from him getting hurt. I had, I had Dak Prescott as my quarterback and was, was able to pick up Herbert off waivers, but yeah, it's been one of those years where a lot of guys going down, but uh, with, with Carson, it's... Um, He's a guy he's going to land on his feet. I don't think that'll probably end up being long-term in Philadelphia. I think they'll end up sticking with Hurts and, and trying to get rid of him with as much or with as limited cap damage as possible. But, uh, you know, I, and Carson, I think he would be the first one to tell you he, he needed to play better this year, and he's disappointed in his performance. But you know, I, I don't care if you're Tom Brady, Carson Wentz, Joe Montana, um, or even Pat Mahomes, if your offensive line, if you're starting, you know, 12 different offensive lines in 13 games, that's a problem. And if you're a quarterback and you're getting beat to hell and don't have time to throw the ball and your receivers are either dropping balls or not getting open, I mean, it, it, I mean that's football, I guess. The quarterback, if you win, you're going to get a lot of the credit. If you lose, you're going to take a lot of the blame. So I, I think that the Eagles in general are, you know, they got a lot of holes, and, and Carson, unfortunately, is – taking the brunt of a lot of criticism. And I think the other part of it is when, when you have a background and a story like Carson, you come from a place like North Dakota State and Bismarck, North Dakota, you know, it's uh, the quintessential kind of American thing. You have the big rise, you get to the top of the mountain, and then when you fall, there's there's an element out there that like to see the the um, hero or the successful person, like to see him take a tumble and come back down to earth. And I think I think that's what we're seeing from, from a lot of the folks at ESPN and NFL Network and, and other outlets covering the NFL is, I think, perversely, a lot of them are, are getting a little bit of, um, you know, taking take uh, probably too much joy than they should in Carson having a tough year. But I'll, I'll tell you what, Jason, Carson Wentz is a competitor. He's a guy that works his butt off. Um, he, I, I think, you know, whether 
I don't think he's going to stay in Philly. I think he's going to end up somewhere else. And I think he's going to have a long NFL career and a successful career. And, you know, he's, he's a guy that's just going to use this to motivate him. And, and in North Dakota, well, uh, you, I mean, you know, up in North Dakota, there's a ton of Eagle stuff everywhere. I mean, even a guy like me, who's a lifelong Vikings fan, I got a couple Carson jerseys in my closet and an Eagles hoodie that for the record, I have not worn since that NFC title game where the Vikings lost to them a couple of years ago. But, you know, folks in North Dakota will have no qualms about uh, dumping their Eagle stuff. And who knows, maybe, I know you got some listeners in the Rocky Mountains there. Carson Wentz, his next jersey could, could be a Denver Broncos jersey. So we'll, uh, we'll see. I never thought of the Broncos. My first thought was the Patriots, actually. Or, or Indianapolis, his former offensive coordinator, Frank Reich, uh, who was the OC the year Carson had. Uh, those really good years there and, and was taking him to the Super Bowl before he got hurt in uh, week 13 or 14 versus the Rams you know, three years ago or four years ago, whenever it was. You know, Frank Reich, his offensive coordinator, is now the head coach in Indianapolis, and they've got Phillip Rivers, who's toward the, the um, latter stages of his career, and they don't have anyone behind them who's a, a franchise kind of guy. So I, I would think that you know, that, that's what I'm reading a lot, that a landing spot might be Indianapolis. But uh, in the league, you know, who who knows where, where one guy is going to end up? You know, if there's an opportunity and uh, the dollars make sense, then that, that's what will end up working out. But uh, as a guy who's watched Carson since he was uh, a junior at North Dakota State starting, uh, he's going to be fine. He'll he'll land on his feet. And, and I know a lot of us back home, uh, we're really cheering for him and, and want him um, to have some redemption here. Well, yeah, and sometimes you know this. In in the world of athletics, when when the team's trust gets shattered, it's really yep. it, it's really yep. hard to yep. pick up the pieces when so many yep. different areas are. And that's why actually the Jalen Hurts thing worked out great because he came in as an outsider, really. You know, he he wasn't a part of that day to day offense at all, and he came in and just added a different perspective for really everybody, and it worked out, which is good. And because of the, you know, the signing of, of Wentz in the offseason, I actually think it's going to work out best for everybody because of that. Just the way it worked out is it kind of, you know, forces the hand of, of, of one or the other, which, is, good, which is, is really good for quarterbacks. The worst thing is to put a starting quarterback in a backup role and to yeah, keep and a that, starting quarterback as a backup. You know what I mean by yeah, that? Bingo. Yeah, and, that, and that's, you know, Carson is such a competitor where he's, He's been there's clips of him here I saw yesterday where he's coaching up Jalen Hurts on the sideline, looking at the surface pro with him going over coverages and, and schooling him up. But uh, Carson, at the end of the day, he is a fierce competitor, and you know he's he's a starting quarterback. He's not a backup, and I think that's going to drive it where you're spot on. He's he's not a guy even with his with the uh, the money he made signing his deal in the summer of 2019. That's not a guy that's going to be happy or content to sit in the backup role. No, and that's why I, I actually think, you know, a, a team can float a second to a fourth round pick because of the money, actually. And Philly might have to take it because of the money. And it'll work out better for both people that way because then it'll be just more about getting getting Carson on a team that is going to benefit and also getting a, a, a decent pick to Philadelphia where they need a lot of slots filled. They really yeah. do. They really need a lot of slots filled. And for, for like in any business, whether it's NFL and all the industry, like we're talking about, you can't, it's not healthy for your organization. If, if you keep, you can't keep both of them. And the reason you can't keep both of them is 
you keep Hurts and you bench him, then you, you have a split locker room. You're going to have Carson guys. You're going to have Jalen Hurts guys. And I think part of the problem this year was Carson was looking over his shoulder the whole time because where, where's the trust in an organization where you spend a second-round draft pick on a quarterback instead of getting an offensive lineman or a, another wide receiver that can help you win? You're taking a backup. You're taking a quarterback who is a young guy in the second round. So what's the message to Carson that you're expendable? We don't believe in you. So I think that that might have rattled them a little bit. But you, know, you keep Carson. You got that issue where if Hurts doesn't play well, he's looking over his shoulder at Carson, and you have the the dynamics in the locker room. And if you start Carson, he's looking over his shoulder. So I, I think from an organizational standpoint, you can't keep both of them. You got to get rid of one. And I think what they'll end up doing, they'll they'll try to get as much for Carson as they can get. And, you know, whether that's a second, third or fourth round pick and them taking some salary, they'll do that. And, and I think Carson Wentz will probably be wearing a different Jersey next year. Yeah, I do too. And boy, I could talk all day about this and point out, you know, the Stefan Diggs Jefferson trade that worked out fantastic for both sides. So there are, there are recent examples of moving superstars for draft picks in order to, you know, satisfy, uh, uh, just the players, really. And and it's not the players' attitude. And I'm not trying to make Diggs out to a bad guy because Diggs just wanted to go where there was opportunity. And right now, Wentz wants to go where there's opportunity. And that's all yeah. it is. So yeah. um, anyway, but how, how can people access those podcasts and the radio shows and everything like that? Give yourself a plug. I, we kept you way too long. I hope you're not going to bill us for this. No, and I've got the time. The timing. The timing is good because my 14-month-old is just waking up, and he's. I'm watching him on the video, and he's just standing in his crib. So I got to get him. But that BisonIllustrated.com has all of our content, or they can check me out on uh, Twitter at Swanee8. We post all of our stuff. That's S W A N Y, the number eight. But I appreciate talking with you. It's always a good conversation.